Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month of May we're discussing environment and climate change issues. With me this week to discuss that is Professor Duncan Wingham, Chief Executive of the Natural Environment Research Council. Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Hello, I'm, I'm pleased to join you. The Natural Environment Research Council, or NERC, is one of the UK research councils and one part of UKRI now. Just to help us put things in context, can you outline the size and shape of the NERC portfolio? Yeah, sure. Uh, so NERC is the largest, uh, by some measure actually, funder of environmental science research in the UK. Uh, our budget is in very round numbers. 300 million a year in resource and about 100 million or it's variable in capital and we fund primarily two suites of activities we fund grants in universities to do a very wide range of, of research in the environment and we also fund a number of large institutes of which some were very well known, so British Antarctic Survey, British Geological Survey, and the National Oceanography Centre, just to pick three, which are substantial centres of disciplinary expertise. And, and in very, very broad terms, half our budget goes on the one and half on the other. Our scientific remit is anything really from the core of the Earth up to the magnetosphere that could be reasonably described um, under the heading natural, even though one has to say, in honesty, there isn't much of that left. We'll come on to that in a minute, I think. Obviously, we're conducting this in interview remotely because of coronavirus, like uh, pretty much everybody else. What areas of NERC-funded science are helping our understanding of the coronavirus and its implications? Well, I mean, clearly, in the, uh, the councils which are most immediately concerned with coronavirus are, of course, Medical Research Council and Biological Research Council. Um, but there are aspects of the of environmental science which are, are highly relevant. On the one hand, there's the question of, does this virus travel through the environment? Is it in the water supply, for example? And also, is it being carried by animals in the wild or, for example, rats in drains? So the, the question of the extent to which the environment, as opposed to humans, our methods of transmission is, is very relevant. And of course, the other side to this, of course, is that what this coronavirus shutdown has done is give the environment a holiday. The other, the other part of this is to think about what, what impact we are now having on the environment by not being in it, and then what, what new impacts we're going to have once we arrive back in it. And what have we found, given this sort of strange experiment that we didn't want to conduct uh, has given us in terms of... Uh, air quality and in terms of ecology and other things? Well, of course, at the moment, if you want to do science, you have to do it from your bedroom. And that means from the point of environmental science that there are some things you can do and some things you can't do. What you can't do at the moment is to go and work in, in the field or in a laboratory. So there's quite a lot we don't know about what's going on. We can just sort of guess. Um, but until we can get back into the field, it's a bit difficult to know. But the, what one can do, of course, is go on use studying the environment with satellites because they're not affected by a virus. And what is very clear from that, what you can see very, very clearly, of course, is the reduction in atmospheric pollution. And you can see this most dramatically in the reduction in, in nitrous oxide and NOx, primarily due to the fact that, that the volume of cars has reduced very, very substantially. Interestingly, on the other hand, um, as far as one can see in the UK, particulate pollution hasn't dropped that much. 
So there's still a lot of activity which is generating particular pollution, even though it might appear, particularly in cities, um, that there's a lot less uh, road activity. That's interesting. Do, do we know why that hasn't dropped? No, not really. Uh, so there are, I say, there are some interesting questions at the moment, or really, because of course this is a new phenomenon. It's only been going on for about five weeks. Um, much of the data we have is somewhat retrospectively, so respective rather. So, so it's, this picture is building up the time. What lessons can we learn from what we've seen in the last few weeks in terms of developing future UK environmental policy, for example? I sort of tempted to say the obvious ones, you know, if you stop if you, emitting, right? <laughs> the environment's less polluted. So, and, and but at some level, that's very true. And, and one keeps seeing articles. So, for example, the water quality in Venice has suddenly enormously increased. And it's very, very what it what this is an object lesson in understanding just how a bigger impact we have on the environment. I don't think that's a terribly complicated lesson. But, but it is the evidence for it is all around us. One obviously other effect from the coronavirus, there's been obviously been a major effect on universities, including impeding the kind of research that they do, research that's funded by NERC. As you said, if you want to do science, you do it in your bedroom. Um, what have been some of the effects on NERC funded projects and how are NERC working with universities and others to try and mitigate them? I have to say that our understanding of What's happening is building over time, but essentially, if you needed a lab or you needed a field experiment, you can't do those things. Now, for a short period of time, making myself unpopular actually the other day by observing that for a short period of time, say a month, almost all researchers benefit from being hauled out of their lab or hauled out of the field and doing something unusual, reading. In other words, there's, a, there's an upside to spending some time out of the lab or out of the out of the field and just thinking and um, because of the scope for writing but but as time goes on of course then the um, position gets worse for all those, all of those scientists what are we seeking to do about it well i think at the highest level we are suddenly as a nation being forced to recognize that in the last decade or so universities have themselves become the largest single funder of research through activities which are generating profit that they've ploughed into research of which the single lar largest is education for high fee paying overseas students but it's not alone there are other sources of income such as conferencing for example what the universities are directly facing of course is a loss of a significant chunk of that income and that would have a significant knock-on into the research base itself so at one level, we are working, we are discussing essentially with government what, what we might be able to do about that. Um, as you may have seen from newspapers, there's a diversity of opinion, I guess one could fairly say, across government about the, the extent to which the government should act. And I think a slightly more local level, um, we did recently announce our intention, uh, well, no, no more than an intention, we announced that we would extend final year PhD students in this year to help them through this what we hope is a temporary period of, of some months and we are actively now thinking about what we can do for for postdoctoral researchers who are also facing the ends of their contracts in this very difficult period and, and more generally what can we do to help sustain research capability be it the skill of postgrads postdocs or laboratory staff or other capability 
that we would want to have to hand whenever we come out of this of this period. So I would say this has been quite a focus and we are working pretty hard on these things. Well, I wish you luck. It's certainly a, a difficult set of circumstances that, uh, that you face. I want to turn to climate change more generally. Obviously, environmental sciences have been a key part in understanding climate change for now several decades. Do you think that it's basically now a matter of politics and economics? Or are there still significant areas of scientific uncertainty that still need to be explored? It's a very dangerous question, this. I have got myself into trouble on occasion by remarking that I don't think we need to spend any more money to understand what happens if you put CO2 in the atmosphere. And what I mean by that is that I think if if, if the it in your sentence, where you said it, if the it in that sentence is the amount of science that one needs to to know in order to decide whether or not to act on carbon dioxide, then we don't need to spend any more. We know the answer to that question. And that does focus, from a research point of view, a great deal of the emphasis, not so much on, well, what happens if you put CO2 in the atmosphere, but the rather more straightforward question of how do we get it out? In other words, the emphasis from a research point of view moves to not so much as what do we have to do to diagnose what we're doing to the atmosphere so much as well how do we cure the problem now of course on the other hand be quite irresponsible to suggest that therefore we don't need to continue to look at climate change and environmental change more widely because you know even if we were to stabilize the co2 situation let's say sake of argument by 2050 we are going to stabilise at a different climate. It won't be the same climate as today. So so at the same time as providing the research effort that's needed to understand how do we reach net zero, at the same time, we've got to continue to observe what's happening in the climate system because it's no longer stationary. It's, it's, it's getting more variable all the time. So I think there's two answers to your question, really. It's a good question, though, because it, it, in the end, Questions about research funding are not, should we do this or that? It's almost invariably a question of what's the right balance to strike. And obviously, with all this evidence that we have, both about the effect of putting CO2 in the atmosphere and in terms of how to try and get it out again, there's an important part of what you do, which is to ensure that the evidence to policy process works so that the evidence that comes from researchers can actually be known and understood by policymakers as they make some of their choices. How does NERC support that process? The, the first thing to say is that NERC is an arm's length body of government and a sort of unwritten rule about arm's length bodies of government is they're not there to lobby government. That's a perfectly legitimate role for independent charities, but it's not what our function is. So we, our role is to effectively fund the research and the evidence on which people can base policy. What is true to say is, I think some years ago, we did an exercise of looking at the latest IPCC report, which is, of course, designed as a processed interface between science and policymakers, and we figured out that a, quarter, that a tenth of all the papers that were quoted could be traced to NERC funding one way or another. So we can really demonstrate in a quite clear way 
NERC's contribution to that process and to that understanding. I, I, I have to say immediately that NERC should be careful as, as it sort of um, imply that it's all down to it. It isn't, of course. The primary reason for this is, is the enormous quality of um, climate-related science in the UK. Uh, and in this, I might just note, you know, it's a little sad to see John Horton pass away this month, the great, the man who was many ways responsible for the IPCC, fabulous figure. Um, we should just sort of acknowledge him, as it were. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. In this whole area of environmental science and policy making, one of the next biggest challenges for the government, at least, is COP26, the next major environmental global conference. How is NERC helping to support that? Just a little while ago, maybe, I don't know, maybe six or eight weeks ago, we essentially offered to UKRI to be the integrating function across UKRI for all COP-related activity. And I think we had two primary goals, one being to showcase, actually, all of the research across the UK, which has contributed to our understanding of climate, but also will contribute to solutions towards net zero. And I think the other thing we were keen to do was to integrate that with whatever is the government's own approach to COP. And, and we, I mean, we have got as far as renting space to um, allow these things to happen and try and create the kind of platform that everybody would like to see because it's a fabulous opportunity to showcase to the world the scientific qualities that I was just referring to. Of course, what's happened is COP has been delayed, but equally, it was very, very encouraging to hear the speech of the Secretary of State and Peace just the other day under the heading of COP um, because it showed that the government, in spite of the current situation, remains very committed to that agenda. And so we uh, fully intend, once things, what, how shall I put this, thaw out a little, to return to that goal of ours, which is to create a platform for UK research, to showcase UK research at, at the COP um, meeting. One of the big things that's happened in the last two or three years, outside of coronavirus, of course, has been an increase in the amount of climate activism across the world, in the UK and in many other countries as well. How is that changing the debate? Well, you referred in your last question, but one, you, you talked about what NOAA was doing to help the interface with policymakers. Now, science, of course, made a, a very enormous contribution to policymaking. And sometimes I say that the, the, the greatest example of scientific impact in the world, the history of the world, has been the the gradual conversion of its energy supply from fossil fuel to renewables, which is absolutely remarkable transformation. We're only halfway through it, but it doesn't alter the fact that it's, it's remarkable. So you could say that recent events haven't really altered that, um, although a number of governments, including our own, continue to increase their commitment. What has been really striking, and I think this is a direct result of the use of the word extinction, has been the way in which biodiversity loss has become an issue which is almost up there with climate in the, in the political discourse. This has been really quite significant. Biodiversity loss and the destruction of the natural, particularly terrestrial environment, not due to climate change, but just a direct action of notably agriculture and land use change, that's been something of a Cinderella, actually, in comparison with climate change. The recent activism of many, many people has really changed that. So people are as now aware in the political discourse 
about the need to act on biodiversity loss as they are about climate loss. So that's how I would answer that question. That's really interesting and I haven't quite heard it uh, expressed in that way. On a totally different subject now, you mentioned in your earlier remarks when you were talking about the NERC portfolio, the fact that it divided some of its research effort through universities and some through large national institutes. And you mentioned British Antarctic Survey and so on. How does NERC balance that kind of investment between what it decides to invest through universities and what it decides to do to support these large research centres? Yeah, I guess, um, I guess I'll give you a pragmatic answer to that because I've been running NERC now since 2012. And the answer I would give you is slightly less the theoretical, but what I would say is it's maintained the balance. And the reason that it's maintained the balance is because there is a considerable body of objective evidence, some of which I asked for myself, which shows, it demonstrates that the institutes that we fund make an equal and as important contribution to UK environmental science as do the universities. So the, this discussion is often somewhat one-sided. There's a sort of implication somehow university research is better. Uh, in fact, you can really show quite clearly that both, both ways of delivering research make signal and important and distinct contributions to the totality of UK, UK research. So I'm of the view that we need both mm. and have worked hard actually in, in what's been a slowly reducing funding landscape for a long time now just to ensure that we keep the balance the same actually. So I think what I would say is maintain the balance between them. And one trend that's also occurred over the last years is a reduction in the number of those research centres that are NERC owned. The latest one, for example, being the National Oceanography Centre, which is now an independent organisation, although still receiving funding, of course, from NERC. What's driving this particular trend, do you think? I actually know the answer to the question because I was driving it. (laughs) So that's quite straightforwardly the case. Uh, I think that my view is essentially that if you're running a a research organization there are certain things you want to be able to do you you want to be able to build reserves and invest in yourself you want to be able to set salary rates which are at, at the commercial rate and are competitive and one wants to be able to take risks and ensure them literally and the thing is that if you're in the public sector you can do none of these things right so you can't do any of them and so the question is why stay I think that the, for a long time, the answer to this question has been, well, vaguely, once more secure if you're in the public sector. But actually, if you look closely at the data, there's no evidence for that. So my view is essentially by becoming independent, it gives organizations the freedom to decide what they wish to do, to diversify, to build up their own research portfolio, to decide what what salaries they should be paying their staff and so on. It, this may seem a bit abstract, I suppose, to, to people who are more focusing on what they do scientifically, but in terms of the health of the organization, I think it's quite important. What we're left with in NERC then is the British Geological Survey and the British Antarctic Survey. And those are organizations which for various reasons are unlikely ever to be outside the public sector in order to move from the public to the private sector, 
you have to pass so-called control test. So it's a test applied by Treasury. And, and it, what it boils down to is government agreeing that they won't seek to control the organisation. That's a definition of a private organisation. And I don't think that that test was ever likely to be met in terms of British Antarctic Survey and British Geological Survey. So I think that those are likely to stay with Merck for the foreseeable future. Interesting. Uh, and, and yes, they are clearly got both got national capabilities that have a strong interest from the government having that. that, that yes, that's why. Continuing. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to skills. NERC obviously invests more than £20 million a year in postgraduate training. And a few years ago, along with other research councils, introduced centres for doctoral training, CDTs. What outcomes have you seen from moving to the CDT model in terms of postgraduate training? Well, if we, if we go back to where we were before, I think it's worth saying that that reform wasn't a reform that the research councils actually chose. It was, it was imposed on them actually by one Adrian Smith during a spending review. But essentially the argument at the time, which I had considerable sympathy with, is that at the time PhD students tended to be regarded as a resource for use by the supervisor rather than a PhD stipend being something that was for the benefit for the student. So the driving motive for moving to a DTP and CDT models i.e. The, the introduction of cohorts, was to try and swing the pendulum away from thinking of PhD students as merely something that helps the supervisor to understanding PhD education as something whose purpose is to benefit the student. And the object of building cohorts was to give them a more rounded community in which to sit. And what I would say about that is that this is immediately obvious if you go and visit them because you then visit a cohort and you, you get these groups of, of very enthusiastic youngsters who are all studying quite different things, actually, but they're all interacting with one another. And that, that's a very big change from used to be the case where essentially they were all on, on their own. So that, I would say, is the primary change. And in NERT, we've pursued that through so-called doctoral training partnerships with universities. But in addition, we have introduced CDT, Centre for Doctoral Training, which is slightly different in emphasis and not much there to develop academic doctorates, but to develop applied ones. And in the days when we used to have royal charters, there was a, there was a straightforward line in the charter that gave the research councils a responsibility, actually, to educate postgraduate students for the benefit of the wider community, not just academia. CDTs were essentially a deliberate choice by NERC in, with which to, to support graduate education that was more for the benefit of the wider world and not, and, and not so much um, purely academic research. And do you think that the skills needed by PhD students now are different to what was needed 10, 15 years ago? Is NERC training actually delivering what's needed for the future rather than what was needed in the past? Well, at the risk of, risk of sounding rather old-fashioned, I, I, my immediate response to the question, do they need the same things now as they did then, is because it's yes. I mean, the primary thing that a PhD is, is a training in how to do research. And how you do research doesn't change that much in 15 or even 50 years. What does change, I think, is technology. And what also changes is the demand of the wider world on people's education. So what's certainly evolved in the last 10 years 
is the technology with which people pursue PhDs, but also in the growing demand that we make, actually, of the providers, the universities, to ensure that they're providing their PhD cohorts with wider skills, not simply those of being a really good lab assistant. So in that sense, the, the experience of being a PhD now, a student now, is quite different from what it would have been 15 years ago. We're coming close to the end of our time, but I just wanted to ask you what you think your, your sort of top three priorities are for NERC over the coming 12 months. Hmm. Well, I think, one, no question, that we're looking at a pretty uncertain future at the moment. And it's uncertain partly for the reason, I, I mean, I was commenting on the, on the position of the universities, but the institutes also face uncertain futures as well. So one, and I would say probably near the top of this list, is trying to help navigate all of these organisations through the next 12 or 18 months, which is going to be quite challenging, I think. I think the second thing I would say is that there were um, some very strong agendas prior to the arrival of COVID that I would like to ensure continue, and notably around net zero, and notably around the desire to ensure that the growth of our economy goes hand in glove with the improvement of the environment. And it's good to see that there are signals from, from government recognising that, of which, of which the speech the, the Secretary of State bees mainly around COP is an example. So the second thing I would say is in NERC, but also at UKRI, we continue to have this focus on how we bring the research base to bear on growing the UK economy whilst improving its uh, environment. And then the third thing, which is a bit shorter term, but is rather obvious, which is what can we learn from this experience of COVID about the environment? and How, how can we bring environmental science to bear to better understand how we avoid this in the future. So those would be my top three today. Well, that's certainly uh, going to keep you busy, I think, over the next 12 months. Professor Duncan Wingham, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.